Uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Um, as you're turning there, although I doubt it will take you too long to find, um, last Lord's Day, as we were having fellowship at the Hoss's house, um, Matt was prodding us in a very good Christian, gentle way that we would uh, consider the incarnation to a greater degree because the culture that surrounds us and this cultural holiday has these things upon our mind more often, and we thought it would be good. And so, just to tell you where we're going the next four weeks, we thought it would be fun, to be honest with you, to consider the promise of the coming Messiah in Genesis, the the promised Messiah in Genesis, okay, the new Adam, and then next, the two weeks after that, to consider the promise of the second advent in Revelation and the fulfillment of the second advent in the book of Revelation. So we have two bookends with the same story, so please stand with me as we read the word of God today. We are going to be considering... In a very weak way, it probably these two verses deserve many weeks of meditation, but we're going to be considering verses 14 and 15 in Genesis, but I'm going to read from verses 14 through 24, so we have some wonderful context. And there are many gospel things in here we just aren't going to be able to consider, unfortunately, today. This is directly after Adam and Eve broke that first covenant in the garden. They fell into sin, and God turns His eyes to lay judgment upon the guilty parties. This is what's said in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, for you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, plural. And he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is not Adam, like the serpent. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Notice, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before you and Lord, I just pray that you would bless the preaching of your word today. I pray that um, 
the wonderful blessing to be able to meditate on your word this week, that you would overflow my heart, that I'd be able to do good to your people, that you would give me an attitude of humility and, um, God, a confidence that I'm preaching the oracles of God, and that you would give all of us anticipation to hear the good news of Jesus Christ given to weak and weary sinners today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at the first three chapters of Genesis, it is one of my favorite things to talk about when we consider these opening pages of the Bible that here contained in this book, not to pick on Matt the the whole time, but we like to talk about that eschatology in the book of Genesis and the Bible precedes soteriology. The God has promised the end that man would be glorified, entered into a covenant with him before time began. But on top of that, in these first three chapters of Genesis, we have what we would call protology, right? First things beginning. And to me, we might be familiar with the illustration that if we take an acorn and we consider this acorn, it is not the tree, but inside of that acorn is everything that makes the tree. And once that is planted, everything is contained in it for that tree to flourish. And I would say to you that the first three chapters of Genesis are like a a bag of seeds, different varieties of trees contained in one bag. And as we consider that bag, it's a forest contained in a very small space. And today, we're going to consider a part of that. The covenant of grace first revealed to fallen mankind And the curse revealed to those who do not repent and put their trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we see that God curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15 temporally and eternally because of His temptation of mankind in the Garden of Eden. What I simply have for us here today is to consider as we... Think about the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh to save sinners. That this text is given first. That if we do not know Jesus Christ, that we would consider the terrible state of humanity and the curse that's given to the serpent and the serpent's seed. And to show us who are saved the terrible curse that we all come from. But also, and obviously, to show us the grace of God towards sinners in Jesus Christ. Covenant breakers as we are, a new covenant God was pleased to enter into and condescend that we would have life through faith in His Son. Okay. So first, we must be totally convinced of our terrible condition in the sight of God before Christ. Or we could say that another way. In our natural state, As we are born in this world under a covenant of works, we are in a terrible state before God. And I believe that we can meditate on that from these verses. First, we notice that the devil, in verse 14 and 15, is sentenced with a terrible judgment. A terrible judgment. The focus of our text, the focus of these next four weeks, the focus of every sermon we try to preach here is on the gospel of Jesus Christ but it's all on the backdrop of incredible sin. And especially we see that in these pages of Genesis. 
chapter 3. Um, and this sin is shown to be as black as it is because of God's good creation. That God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2 very good. And more than that, He created mankind good with goodness in His heart, a love toward God and a love towards His neighbor and gave Him a righteous law for Him to obey. And the devil comes into the garden using the subtlety of the serpent and deceives the good creation of God. The pinnacle of His creation. Adam and Eve. Now, as we read this text, you don't find the language explicitly of the devil being mentioned. And we could go to many places in Scripture. But I would just have us quickly, and you don't even have to turn there, you can, to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, where this connection is absolutely made explicit that it was the devil using the subtlety of the serpent to deceive. Notice verse 9 of, Je- of Revelation 12 It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of not just Adam and Eve, but of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This serpent slithering into the garden comes up to this pinnacle, this good creation of God, Adam and Eve who bear the image of God. And what does he do? This terrible backdrop of sin shows us that the devil first impugns the character of Almighty God. Instead of him being a good creator and a good God who gives good gifts to his people, he's really holding us back from our full potential here. He's holding us back from true freedom. And therefore, follow me, says the serpent. Do what I say. Become my disciple, so to speak. And cast God away and become the captain of your own destiny, creating your own laws and doing what you want to do. And the first sin enters the world. And we know from Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that death through sin enters the world through this first sin. And through this, creation is totally tainted with corruption. As we consider that, the magnitude of this sin... That God created not just the garden, but the whole world and the whole universe in absolute goodness. And sin is so evil that the entire structure of the cosmos is affected by it. And corruption enters into the world. But the worst thing that happens here is not that the whole universe becomes corrupt. The worst thing in this passage is that mankind is ruined. Ruined, forsaked. They have forsaken eternal life, forsaken communion with God. And God therefore rightly pronounces judgment. And that's where we come in this text. God pronounces judgment on this terrible sin, this cosmic treason that has happened. And our God first turns His eyes toward the serpent. Turns His eyes towards the serpent and gives Him Judgment. And notice the strong language in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this. With all of that in our background, the corruption of nature and mankind, the ruin of souls of men, it says, You've done this wicked thing. Because you've done it, this is your 
judgment. And he gives a few things. First, he's cursed above all livestock. On the belly he is going to go. Dust he shall eat. He's going to be an irreconcilable warfare with a, an enemy of the serpent that we haven't encountered as of yet. And he's going to have complete destruction by a seed that comes from the woman that is going to him. Now, obviously all of these things can have a merely physical interpretation to them. And there's unbelieving commentators that have commented that this is merely a story about why mankind doesn't like snakes very much. Okay? Now, on the surface, some of that can be shown to be true. Right? Mankind, there's few creatures in this world that are more deplorable and base in human eyes than a serpent that crawls on the ground that can sneak behind your bed or under your pillow, can strangle you in the night, or bite your feet and kill you in an instant. And these physical things can be seen. Uh, we can look at on the belly you shall go, and there can be conjecture made that perhaps this snake once had legs, or perhaps it slithered, but it was more upright in its front section. It's certainly possible. Um, People will talk about the dust that they shall eat. That a serpent eating mice on the ground and other kinds of things, they, they have to take in some dust as they eat those things. Sure. There's irreconcilable war between mankind. Uh, okay. Complete dis- destruction becomes a little hard to swallow. I think that all of us reading this, though, we see that there's a spiritual interpretation of this that goes not to the serpent, even though the serpent, and when we look at serpents in this natural world, should remind us of this story. We see a spiritual interpretation that I think we ought to take some time to consider. What does it mean spiritually that the serpent would be cursed above all livestock and on his belly he would go? First of all, this should tell us that the serpent is going to be in a different position than the one that he eternally was made to inhabit. The devil was not always looked upon by creation and by the angels of heaven as a low creature, rather a very exalted and high creature. And like the serpent crawling on its belly, this devil is going to be seen as the lowest form of all beings in the world, hated by men, hated by men, the most reviled being in the universe, he is going to be going from glory to loathsomeness in his position. And I'm tempted to think, as we read that he crawls on his belly, that certainly signifies a low level and a low position. But if we look at other words in the Bible about how belly is used, specifically in the New Testament, We see words about false prophets, that their God is their own belly. Of unbelievers, that they follow their own appetites, and this is the same word in the Greek, Septuagint, used for belly. But certainly we get this, that he's going to eat dust all the days of his life. That is, not only is his position changed from one of glory to one of the most loathsome creatures in the world, but rather... His desires are also affected that corruption enters into the serpent. Now, if we think about this, all right, we, we think of the devil as a totally corrupt, 
being, and he is, but he was not created by God in that way. God did not create the devil as a totally evil being, but when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, I believe that when it says that he's going to crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life, that his desires and passions would be corrupted to such an extent that he is going to be totally and utterly depraved, seeking only evil. And the pinnacle of that is that he would have a murderous attitude toward all mankind. Dust he will eat all the days of his life. Mankind is dust, created from dust to dust he will return. And the serpent's desire, his peak desire, is to destroy mankind. And to, as we could say, consume them. He is judged in these ways temporally. His corrupted nature has become more and more corrupt. And his position is the lowest of all creation. The lowest of all creation. Now, this particular sinful impulse, again, is to seek and murder the children of man. And we could turn to several passages for this. I would just have us consider two. In 1 Peter 5.8, we think of the devil and his judgment and his desire to seek to murder the children of men. We see in 1 Peter 5.8. Where it said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, notice, seeking someone to devour. What does the devil seek? He seeks to kill mankind. I believe that the corruption that was already in his heart when he tempted Adam and Eve, this is... A full corruption that's being displayed. And we also see in John chapter 8 that Jesus tells the Pharisees that you're of your father who's a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning. And finally, and spiritually looking at this and how the devil is judged, complete destruction will come upon the devil. That is that his eternal fate is sealed. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the devil and his works were destroyed. And eternally at the judgment day, as Matthew 25, 41 tells us, that there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. Okay? So what I want us to see is that when when God turns his eyes to the devil and pronounces judgment, there is temporal judgment. That he is going to be totally corrupted in nature. The most base and abject creatures with the most terrible desires of any creature in the world. And he will be punished forever. And as we consider that, it is appropriate for us to consider his seed in this passage. We're introduced in an un- foreseen way in this passage that there is going to be two seeds that come from this conflict. The seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent, I would propose to you today, when we consider this passage, will be judged in a very similar way to the serpent. That is, when we consider the devil having judgment coming upon himself, we've said nothing uncontroversial, and all people would agree. But there's judgment for the devil's seed as well. 
The two kinds of people that are introduced in this passage are the seed of the woman, who is the church, those who believe in the promises given by God, and the seed of the serpent, those who by natural generation are born into this world and do not believe the gospel. Now, when we consider this, I just want us to think, this judgment is pronounced, and before we go too quickly to the good news to the church, what does this passage say to those who do not believe the gospel? Well, it tells us that all of us are naturally born in this condition. That is, when we come to Genesis 3.14, all of the Bible in mind, and we ask, who is the seed of the serpent? It's all of us naturally. Before we have faith. Consider with me two passages. One we've mentioned already, and I'd have you turn to them. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. The seed of the serpent, who is it? It's all who do not believe in the name of the seed to come, Jesus Christ. Notice John chapter 8 and verses 42 through 44 in an argument with the Pharisees who considered themselves to be the seed of Abraham. To be God's children. Notice what Christ says. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I came from God and I am here. And I came not of My own accord, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and a father of lies. And... Perhaps the clearest text that we have is in 1 John chapter 3. That not only are the Pharisees the seed of the serpent, but all who do not believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, we read, Whoever makes a practice of sinning, and is purposeful, willful sin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. And then verse 10, By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The Scripture is very clear, brothers and sisters, that by nature we are children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. That we're all born in this condition and reading Genesis 3, 14 and 15 should cause us to reflect on our condition before we came to Christ. And if you're, not, if you're here today and you don't trust in Christ, these judgments are not just laid on an ancient serpent, but on the seed of the serpent as well. And I want us to consider it today. That the serpent seed partakes of present and future judgment. Okay? Now, I am not saying that the exact same curses that come upon the devil come upon all who do not believe in Christ, but they are analogous and congruent with one another. First, there is a present corruption and enmity in all people who don't believe in Christ. 
All of us are born with original sin, which as we've been looking at for the last couple weeks in our Sunday school, is corruption of nature and guilt. Corruption of nature and guilt. Ephesians chapter 2 describes to us this corruption of nature in a very graphic way and tells us that all of us, as the devil was corrupted in his nature, so we partake of that corruption. Notice Ephesians chapter 2. This was all of our state before Christ. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And listen to this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. There is a familial relationship, a relationship of the act and the will in all the seed of the serpent. That is all of us born naturally. That we, we look for the passions and desires of our mind and we live after those things just as the devil did. Romans 8, 7 tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Is it enmity with God just like the serpent? For it does not submit to God's law. Notice this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What I want us to see here is by nature, all of us partake in the corruption of our own souls and our desires. And on top of that corruption, we have guilt. Guilt that's present and guilt that's future. Without Christ coming and proclaiming to us the gospel, we know that the wrath of God abides on us. John 3 tells us that all of us had the judgment of God written above our heads as as criminals that were waiting execution, sitting in a cell block on death row. We knew that those those doors, when they clank shut, they proclaim guilt and future punishment. And so with us, We try to appease our consciences by creating false gods that accept our meager works. We try to do works of righteousness to try to get into God's good graces. But present guilt abides on us. And like the serpent whose head would be crushed on that final day, if we don't believe in Christ, if we never came to Christ, our destiny is to be eternally Forever damned in the sight of God. Again, this language of being of the serpent's seed and of future punishment is highlighted for us in Matthew chapter 3. Again, the Pharisees coming to Christ and their argument, it seems that John the Baptist, rather not Christ, knows the argument that they're saying, well, we're sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. But notice what John the Baptist says in verses 7 through 10. 
But when John, he, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, notice what he says, you brood of vipers. I don't think that John is just using a colloquial expression here to say that you're like snakes. I think he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. You're of the seed of the serpent. You brood of vipers, he says to them. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, I have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. What good news that is. Now, even, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All of us naturally are under guilt and condemnation that would bear the fruit of eternal death if it was not for Christ. Now, it is very true that the gospel is the focus of the passage that we have in front of us. But what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is the bleak context that all of humanity is under. And this bleak context, it, it calls us to come and bask in the good news of Jesus Christ that is given in this passage. All of us are corrupted as the devil was corrupted. All of us partake in future judgment if it was not for Christ coming. But the good news is that we are not only to be totally convinced of our terrible state before God, but we're called in this passage to believe the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Believe the promise that's given to those who are naturally of the serpent seed. That's all of us here today. Now, we have three promises that I want to go through here today. Three promises. Now, we're introduced, first of all, to a, a new humanity being promised. All humanity fell in Adam. But a new seed is introduced and is being fulfilled through the promise of God here. Here we have a, a promise of a distinction that's made by grace. You know, as Romans chapter 9 tells us, that out of mankind there was one lump, and in God's freedom and grace, He chose out of that one lump to take some of us and to save us for His own glory and grace. Now, the context of this passage should have us view these promises as if we were miners in West Virginia and we're down in the mountains, we're mining for coal, and the entire cave system collapses upon us. It's bleak, it's dark, the weight of the stones coming in upon us is crushing us, and all we can think of is death. But then we notice three points of light coming out from the rocks. And we begin to dig, and the area gets bigger and bigger until we come out to the full light of day. That's somewhat the picture that we have in Genesis 3.15. As Brother Joey taught us in the covenant in our confession this morning, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed here, the covenant of grace, and it comes by through farther steps. Farther steps. We have a point of light being seen, and we see that covenant of grace being revealed for the first time, but it tempts us 
to go on and see what the rest of the Bible says about this. That is, a new humanity first is promised here. And it's promised in a very implicit way. It says that He will put enmity between the devil and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. We have here promised that God is going to create a new humanity and a new family by grace. And this is revealed by farther steps. So we're to ask the question as we read this passage, how does this come about and where do we see a new humanity being created? We come to Genesis chapter 4. And it seems that, that Eve might have sensed that a new humanity was coming in the birth of her firstborn son, Cain. But after it was revealed in redemptive history that Cain was actually not the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent and killed the seed of the woman. Other seed came, Seth. And we read in Genesis chapter 5 that when Seth was born, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is, all this humanity that was under the curse of the law A man came, Seth, and from his seed, from his family coming, men started to call upon the name of the Lord God. And a new seed was created, a divergence between the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. It's seen for us. We see it clearly in Abraham as he is called from Ur of the Chaldees, a seed of the serpent, worshiping other gods, as Joshua tells us. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he is told that through his seed, the promised one is going to come. And we see the people of Israel being introduced here as a type and a shadow of the church. The nation of Israel becomes numerous and represents the seed of the woman that is against the nations, the seed of the serpent, And their job is to believe the Gospel. To overtake the nations even. And have victory. But Israel was only a type of the true Israel that was to come. Galatians chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. Galatians chapter 3. These farther steps of a new humanity being revealed. The seed of the woman coming we see in a much clearer light after Christ has come that we all who believe are the sons of Abraham. That is not by natural birth, but by faith we become the seed of the woman and leave the family of the serpent. Notice with me, particularly verses 7-9. through Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Notice this language. Preach the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And I just want us to see that here. Then Genesis chapter 3, as we see the seed of the woman being introduced, it's revealed this plural seed of the woman. A new humanity is going to come, and we see it in the church today. 
As we look around, brothers and sisters, at us who confess the name of that singular seed, the Son of God, we can look and say we were once all slithering serpents, a brood of vipers like the Pharisees, but God in His grace has made us new creations in Him, taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and the family of the evil one, and put us as the seed of the woman connected by faith to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But this new humanity isn't even fully realized here in this present day. It will be fully realized in all of its glory with no hypocrisy in the kingdom of God in heaven. As we worship our God forever and ever without intermission, we will be with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue around the throne continually. The seed of the woman gathered forever, separated from the seed of the serpent. And the enmity done away with. But we know that the only reason the plural seed of the woman can be fulfilled at all is because the singular seed of the woman. This is the grace of the Gospel given to us. Because God in His wisdom had to save us through somebody coming and keeping the law perfectly for us and being damned for us for the sins that we have committed. There is a singular seed of the woman being promised here. And I'm sure you've noticed as we've been reading, tried to point it out briefly, we see that he will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, plural, and her offspring, singular, and or, um, plural, and then he switches to the singular. He shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The salvation of all of us is only possible because of this single man that's coming. And what's what's really captivated me in reading through this this week is almost the opposite language of resurrection and glorification that we see in Genesis chapter 3. The man's created for glory and to glorify God forever, and yet he's going to go back into the dust, right? Almost a, a decreation of man we see there. But here we see man is raised up to glory once again through the sinless Son of God. There will come another Adam, as Joey will preach next week, I have no doubt, a second seed who is going to be a second sinless Son of God come to the earth to save us. He will destroy the devil and all of his works. He will crush his head and he will make it better than the beginning. I don't know if you've ever considered that before. That the Garden of Eden was wonderful and perfect for its time as it was. Christ is bringing us to a place that's going to be better even than the Garden of Eden for us. He will do it. And it is faith in this promise. Faith in the seed that is to come. That is the instrument of all of our salvation. Isn't that a wonderful reality and promise? That God desires nothing from us, asks nothing from us to be transferred from this serpentine family to the family of God than merely to receive the good news. To receive the good news by faith. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has lived a perfect life. He has died the death I deserve to die. And He has risen forever on high. This is the Gospel. But, again, the seed of The singular seed is revealed by farther steps. 
And we see him revealed typologically. Typologically, that is, in the story that is presented to us in Genesis through Malachi, we see a repeated theme of a Savior coming. We see it once again in Cain and Abel. And if you're in Genesis 3, look briefly with me to chapter 4. We've already kind of revealed our cards here. But notice, it says, Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's literally, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And it seems, and I think it's logical to think, that after Eve received this promise that a seed is coming from you to curse and to destroy the seed of the serpent, she thought that Cain perhaps would have been the savior of the world. And she names her second child Abel, Havel, emptiness, a vapor, a mist. But it turns out that her dreams were crushed by Cain being a seed of the serpent. We see it in Noah. That perhaps Noah that is coming to free us from the curse of the ground, that Noah is the seed coming to save us in this world. We see it in Abraham as he is chosen to be the father of many nations. We see it in Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. We see it in judges even further revealed as men are raised up to crush the enemies of God's people. We see it in David. We see it in Solomon. The great kings ruling over their people and destroying the nations around them. But we also see it prophetically, don't we? That we have specific prophecies that tell us about the Messiah coming into the world. That He will be a prophet come to His people. Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells about and prophesies the coming of a new prophet. Verses 17 through 18, it says this, The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will speak my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them what I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And Peter interprets this in Acts chapter 3 as, being talk, as talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110, David promises us that this coming Messiah, he reveals him by farther steps, that he will be a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9 that a child will be given to us. A child will be given to us who will be God and man. And I know this is a very brief overview, brothers and sisters. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. As we consider the Bible revealing the singular seed coming to us by farther steps, revealing it, we get a high point of Old Testament prophecy in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. And notice this. 
with Genesis chapter 3 in the back of our minds, for to us a child is born. Notice, not just a child is born, but to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase and of his government, there shall be no end. But the full revelation, we come out of the cave into full light, or the the dimmer switch in the room is turned completely up when we enter into the pages of Matthew chapter 1 where we read in verse 16 that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That a literal fulfillment of Genesis 3.14 takes place as Jesus is born of Mary. Not of Joseph and Mary, but of Mary alone. What a wonderful thing. We, we confess and we rejoice with Paul as he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And because of this, we can be certain of complete victory in Jesus Christ. What I want to point out to us today, brothers and sisters, is that if we look at Genesis 3.14, a promise given at the very dawn of human history, and see that God was faithful to keep His promises and to reveal that promise over and over throughout history, how much should we trust that He will bring the second advent of Jesus Christ to us? He has given us a book that no man could ever devise. And a story that has been revealed and fulfilled in every way for us. How wonderful it is to meditate on the fact that our God has promised and He will surely do it. And this should cause us to set our minds on heavenly things. Again, to consider the fact that 2,000 years before Moses, a promise was given to mankind that a seed would come. And that He fulfilled it through every kind of crook through history, every bad event, every tragedy. God kept His promise. This should cause us to lift up our eyes away from our worldly cares and trust that God is doing something greater than we could ever imagine. How often we worry our minds and fret over the details of our life when there is a wonder and a grandeur that is laying in our laps. It should cause us to look toward those future promises with great hope. Christ has already conquered all the power of the enemy. The devil is doomed and condemned and can no longer condemn the seed of the woman. But there is coming a day when victory will be forever realized. And we ought to arm ourselves with that reality and that fact. We should meditate on how God has fulfilled every covenant promise He's ever given. And to say it again, to trust Him that He will forever do the same. He will forever do the same. Arm ourselves with the knowledge of the faithfulness of God in order to stand strong until He brings us home forever. So, in conclusion, we 
we consider Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. And what we should keep in mind is our natural state that we were forever without hope and without God in the world, being far from the promises of God. But through faith in Jesus Christ, this coming seed, He has made us new, has transferred us into a new family that has promised victory forever. And as we turn our eyes to the communion table, this is what we're promised, brothers and sisters. In physical form, we see this singular seed came. And He not only came, He died for us. His body was broken, and He says it was broken for you. The only man who was born without corrupt nature and without guilt died for those who are of the devil and of the serpent. And it's to proclaim his death until he comes. Until he comes again and fulfills every promise that he's ever given to his people. If he promised 4,000 years ago and it's come to pass, it certainly will come to pass that he will finish everything on behalf of his people. Brother, would you come forward?